0: God goes, belonging to every riven thing he's made. Thing his being, simply by being, the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky. Man who sees and sings and wonders why. God goes. Belonging to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. Think of atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone, trying to will himself into the stillness where God goes belonging. To every riven thing he's made, there is given one shade, shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see, God goes belonging to every riven thing. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go, a part of what man knows, apart from what man knows. God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made.
1: The poem we heard this morning as our reading was called Every Riven Thing by the poet Christian Wyman. In his own words, uh, riven is a kind of an Old Testament word that means broken or sundered or torn apart. Riven is a weird place for me to begin a sermon. But this poem from Christian Wyman that we shared resonated deeply with me as I was writing this sermon and I kept going back and listening to it over and over again. God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky, man who sees and sings and wonders why. I find it paradoxical that I, who have railed from this very pulpit against the idea that we are born broken, would be so taken, so transfixed, so transformed by this poem. But one of the things that seems to become more and more clear to me is the deep relationship between paradox and wisdom. So this morning, in search of a deeper relationship with humility, personally one of my most vexing challenges, I'm going to embrace this paradox and talk about some of the ways in which I feel broken. Now, I couldn't settle on a single approach to humility, so I'm going to actually use several. Um, I'm going to talk about green eggs and ham. I'm going to talk about uh, being a manager. And I'm going to talk about my aspirations of, of leadership and public speaking. Um, And between these fragments, I'm going to break it up with segments of the poem Every Riven Thing and also recitations of the Serenity Prayer, which I would like us to actually do as a unison reading when we get to that point. So the way we're going to do that is you'll know I'm about to start because I'm going to fold my hands like this. And the first time we do it, I'm just going to recite it, and and I'm going to ask you to recite it back to me just like we were doing wedding vows. Are we ready? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss is what is on my son Simon's nightstand right now. I, or it would be if I hadn't stole his copy to read this morning. Green Eggs and Ham has become a method by which my wife and I can get Simon to try something new. Sometimes. The protagonist of Green Eggs and Ham has no name, which is bad for storytelling, unless you are as talented as Dr. Seuss, and I am not. So, I'm just going to call him, I am not Sam. Now, I am not Sam does not like Sam I am. Perhaps this dislike comes from some experience. Perhaps it is because I Am Not Sam dislikes introduction by signboard. Perhaps I Am Not Sam does not care for creatures who enjoy writing other creatures while carrying signboards. Or perhaps I Am Not Sam just doesn't like being interrupted while he's reading his newspaper. Whatever the case, we are unsurprised when I Am Not Sam declines Sam-I-Am's offer of green eggs and ham. Not only because of our skepticism about green animal-based food products, but because we know from our own experience that we are disinclined to accept things from people we don't like. As a matter of fact, the less we know about what is being offered, the more likely we are to substitute our opinion of the person doing the offering for our evaluation of what it is there are. What's more, when we perform this little cognitive trick, we are generally unaware that we're doing so. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is what's on my nightstand right now. And one of the lessons from the book is that while we are amazing at inferring the general from the specific, we are really lousy at deriving the specific from the general. So, here's a story. You can think of it as an addendum to green eggs and ham. I am not Sam doesn't like Sam I am. Sam I am offers green eggs and ham. I am not Sam likes not green eggs and ham. Enter psychologist Kahneman. Kahneman asks of I am not Sam. Where comes your opinion of green eggs and ham? Reasons abound from I am not Sam. For example, his mother is allergic to ham. And his brother's misfortune while hunting wild spam. And deviled eggs sicken poor I am not Sam. But among these reasons that not Sam has given, his dislike of Sam he will fail to mention. And this, my dear friends, is why he is riven. God goes, belonging to every riven thing he's made, means a storm of peace. Think of the atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone, trying to will himself into the stillness where. God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So I had my team at work take the VIA Strengths Survey. This is a positive psychology instrument that basically tells you what your strongest virtues are. And since it's all framed positively, thus positive psychology, um, it isn't supposed to be a criticism in any way. And when you take the test online, they just show you your top five strengths. But there's a link there that lets you see the full report, and I'm a human being, so I clicked the link because I had to know what my bottom five were, too. Right? So... um, Now, mind you, uh, these are not weaknesses. These are just the strengths at which I am least strong. (laughs) And I'm gonna give you 0.1 seconds to guess what was at the bottom of Eric's list. Humility, yes, yes. So, so, I'm in the staff meeting with my team and we are sharing our top five strengths and I've got them mapped out on the whiteboard and we are mapping where everybody is in their top five and we're looking as a team where we're strong and we're talking about how we're going to bring those strengths to to face the sort of challenges, workplace challenges that we face as a team. And because I don't know when to shut my mouth, after this group exercise is over, I say to them, Now, we're not going to talk about this today. This isn't for public discourse, but what I want each of you to do when you go home tonight is to take a look at your bottom five, and I want you to think about how it is that you can use the strengths you're strong at to compensate for the things that you're weak at. Um, Now, in and of itself, this is not a big deal. This is the kind of pedantic nonsense that all of us have to tolerate from our bosses from time to time, right? Right? But I have this rule as a manager, and the rule is that I am not allowed to hold my people accountable for anything that I'm not willing to do myself. And so here I am three years later, publicly struggling in front of you with how to use my strengths to develop more humility. God... Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God goes belonging. To every riven thing He's made, there is given one shade, shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see. Manic depression makes sense to me. It is really easy for me to see how little a change in the mind it would take for the tension between feelings of empowerment and feelings of powerlessness to just snap. To live one's life actively holding these two Forces, these two facts of the human condition at bay, to keep them in tension with one another and to exist in that tension without surrendering to either force. To do this seems so much more profound and more amazing to me than simply vacillating between the two poles or surrendering to either despair or megalomania. But this is what most of us do every single day. In my struggle to find this balance, I have tended to frame it as a search for a life course by which I can maximize the amount of change that I can make in the world. And I have found this approach frustrating. And there have been recent revelations that have caused me to suspect that it is this one dimensional way of framing the issue that might itself be the problem. So let me talk about this. Several months ago, my book club read The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. He's a celebrated psychoanalyst who wrote his seminal work on the fear of death during his own terminal struggle with cancer. Now, the fear of death is widely cited as a root cause of many aspects of the human condition, both positive and negative, but it was Becker's concept of the immortality project that really struck me. An immortality project is a thing that a person latches onto that mollifies or neutralizes their fear of death. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here are some sort of stereotypical examples of immortality projects. When parents try to live the life that they wished they had had through their children, that is turning the child into an immortality project. When architects sacrifice every human relationship to get a building or a monument built, it's likely that that monument or that building for them is is an immortality project. Or when a poet places his life and his being on the altar of words, those words, those poems, might become his or her immortality project. There's a poem by Robert Bringhurst that captures, for me, the spirit of pathology that I think immortality projects necessarily imbue on their object. These poems, these poems, these poems, she said, are poems with no love in them. These are the poems of a man who would leave his wife and child because they made noise in his study. These are the poems of a man who would murder his mother to claim the inheritance. These are the poems of a man like Plato, she said, meaning something I did not comprehend, but which nevertheless offended me. These are the poems of a man who would rather sleep with himself with, than with women, she said. These are the poems of a man with eyes like a draw knife, with hands like a pickpocket's hand, woven of water and logic and hunger but with no strand of love in them. These poems are as heartless as birdsong, as unmeant as elm leaves, which, if they love, love only the wide blue sky and the air and the idea of elm leaves. Self-love is an ending, she said, and not a beginning. Love means love of the things sung, not of the song or of the singing. These poems. You are, he said, beautiful. That is not love, she said. I have come to recognize that the pathological intensity with which I frequently desire to change the world My immortality project and a source of much of my own hubris. Another piece of this puzzle came through my involvement in the Dwight Brown leadership experience. One of the themes of the curriculum is family systems theory. And through my exposure, I discovered that if, like myself, you are a firstborn child of very young parents, it is really quite likely that you will develop a strong need to fix the world. Now, I found that both comforting and deflating. I found it comforting that I was less lonely than I had previously thought. But I found it also relatively disconcerting because it made me realize something important. And that it made me realize that my desire to fix the world isn't because the world is so broken. My desire to fix the world is because my relationship with the world is so broken. I learned this perspective during my formative years. And it is one that I am still struggling to unlearn. A third aspect of this puzzle came to my attention through my experience in the Leadership Austin Essential Program. A neighbor and classmate shared with me her sense of how I present myself as smarter and better than others and how condescending this often felt to her and to others with whom she had spoken. I had come to recognize that how I am in the world is a turnoff for some significant portion of any given audience. But, like most of us, I had also learned to rationalize away that problem so that it was about other people and not about me. This friend's willingness as a member of the group, to openly and honestly share her feelings and her thoughts and her impressions with me was invaluable. And what I've come to realize is that this sense of condescension that comes through in my personality is not about what I think when I'm thinking. And it's not about what I believe when my mind is focused on what I'm believing and what I believe in, what I think is important. It is about how I am in the world. It is about my attitude about fixing the world. And I have to be honest, this attitude is that I'm the one. I am the one who has to and needs to and is going to fix the world. And the rest of you are implicitly part of that world. And that means that I'm going to fix you too. (laughs) Whether you like it or not. Now, I might not believe that this is true. In fact, I don't believe that this is true. But I have to learn how to stop pretending that I don't act like I do. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God goes belonging to every riven thing. He's made the things that bring Him near, made the mind that makes Him go, a part of what man knows, a part from what man knows. I value humility. Through my struggles and my reflection, I have come to honestly and sincerely believe in the value of what each of us has to offer. To believe that regardless of how we write history books, we all make up the human story every single day. That's just what I think when I'm thinking. It's what I believe when I'm focused on believing. It says nothing of whether or not I am humble in my being in my way of being. Just as I am sure that there are tremendously humble beings out there in the world who have never spent much time thinking about humility, I am sure that despite all of my thinking about humility, I am not yet humble. This is, for me, the crux of the two selves. I come from a culture of orthodoxy. And I have too often and too easily believed that once I had come to believe the right thing, I had accomplished my aim. But the self that thinks and reflects and conjures the story of my identity, this self is only one part of me. It is the conscious and reflective part, it is not the automated and unconscious part of myself which sets the tone and acts based on all the preconceptions formed by my own life experience. It is my remembering self and not my being. My other self, my acting self, my in-the-moment self, my being can be retrained, is, hopefully, being retrained. This retraining requires me to be mindful. To be evaluative of who and how I am in the world. This retraining is shifting my emphasis from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, increasing my emphasis on right acting, right behavior. My spiritual practice, of which standing up in here in front of you today is a very large part, is about finding these balances between what I think. And what I do. Between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Between empowerment and powerlessness. But not between hubris and humility. Hubris is to live ignorant of my rivenness. To live blind to my blindness and callous to my own callousness. Hubris is to live in a state of perpetual self-righteousness. Hubris is a childish thing that I struggle to put away. Humility is to live like I am not the center of the universe. Humility is to live like we are all in this together. Humility is an aspiration that I struggle to live up. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God goes belonging to every riven thing He's made. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www austinuu.org